0: The other thing also, which is uh, amazing, that Pacific Crest Trail has about half a million feet of climbing. Imagine climbing up half a million feet. Everest is 30,000 feet, uh, more or less from sea level. So it's kind of like climbing Everest from sea level about, I'd say about 18 times.
1: Episode 273, A Transcontinental Triathlon with Yannick Chanou, Part 1. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville.
2: Hi friends, we have Michelle Shea back. She is our Wilderness cooking expert from AdventureDiningGuide.com, and as you know on previous shows, she's been here to share some recipes with you that you can use on your summer adventures. And so Michelle has another one for us today. Michelle, what's cooking?
3: Today we're going to make sliders and onion rings.
2: Sliders and onion rings.
3: Oh, yeah. This how, do you, is- how do you do that in
2: the backcountry?
3: This is a meal for when you've been out for a couple of days and you're just starting to get that hankering where you want a sandwich or burger. It happens to everybody. This is my solution.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, well, I can't imagine carrying a bunch of hamburger and hamburger buns and stuff like that into the backcountry for days on end. So you must have a trick to this.
3: It is. So it's not hamburgers. We're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, It's a king Hawaiian bread, so you're going to get that sweet bread with some Swiss cheese and some salami. So it's kind of a little bit of a play on it, but the best part is the onion cream. And these are things that most people use as salad toppings, but they're actually little mini dehydrated onion rings with tons of salt and lots of good fats, and they taste awesome. So mini burgers with mini onion rings.
2: All right, so how do we do this?
3: (laughs) All right, let's dive in. So our ingredients for this is your meat, and I recommend a salami just because it lasts so long, but if you're only going for a night, you can do a ham, turkey, whatever your style is. Um, Then we need our King's Hawaiian sweetbread, just the little mini buns, some Dijon mustard, and you can get little packets of this at a convenience store or gas station, some Swiss cheese, olive oil just to coat the pan, and then a nice, good nonstick pan with a lid on it. And we're going to be cooking this on a 180 stove. And this is another good one that you can share for a bunch of people. So if you've got a good group, make everybody excited. Give them some sliders and onion rings.
2: Right on. So the the onion rings, I think it maybe broke up there. You said they were onion crisps. Is that right? They're
3: onion crisps. Yep, exactly. So they're the ones that you can get. For a lot of salads, um, in the most grocery stores, you find them in the salad section, but they come in a little baggy. But it's, it's usually a topping, but it just brings so much crunch and so much big flavor. And if you've got a lot of people, buy extras because they go really quickly.
2: <laughs> so how do we put all this together?
3: Okay, so we're going to be taking our stove getting a nice medium to low heat on it. This is, again, another one that we're just going to warm up the ingredients. We're not going to do a lot of cooking with this. But the goal is to melt the cheese to get the flavors all warm. Um, Basically, take your King's Hawaiian bread. And it's a good pack food because it's springy. So if it does get mashed up in your pack pretty good, as most breads do, it comes back to life pretty well, and it still has a lot of good flavors to it. So just slice your buns in half as you would for a slider. Put your Dijon mustard your couple slices of Swiss cheese and your salami in there. Put the lid back on the bun, coat your pan so it doesn't stick to it with a little bit of olive oil. Plus, you're going to get some good fats from that oil. Then we're going to just lay our sliders down on top, Um, put a lid on your pan, and then just let it all heat up. should take about 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so, depending on the heat of your stove. And then at the end, enjoy some nice cheesy sliders with some onion rings on the side.
2: Very cool. Well, I love this stuff. You keep coming back and amazing me with foods I would not think that I could cook in the backcountry, but the way that you put it together, it works. And so thank you very much, Michelle.
3: Thank you so much, and please, visit, uh, and please visit AdventureDiningGuide.com for more recipes. Share your stories with me if you have some good ones. Right on. Thanks, guys. Have a good day.
2: Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Boy, do I have a fun journey to share with you today. I have Yannick Chenu with us, and Yannick and Shirley, it's been a few years back, but they did what they like to label the Transcontinental Triathlon. And let me give you just a little bit of the details of that. They kayaked the Inside Passage from Alaska all the way down to Washington. Then they through-hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, 2,700 miles. And uh, then they got on bikes. And they cycled through Central and South America, all the way down to Ashwaya, where they had covered the the length of the of the North and South and Central American continents, which is really, really cool. And also, during that last leg of all the cycling, they stopped off in... Peru and Bolivia and did some high-altitude mountaineering just so they wouldn't get too bored. So, wow, we've got a lot to talk about today. This is really going to be fun. Yannick, welcome to the program. Good to be here, Kurt. So, Yannick, I have to ask just the first question is, why did you do it?
0: Why? Because it was a chance of a lifetime. You know, how many opportunities do you have in your life to do something really big? You know, at the time, uh, I did not have a kid actually did not have a, a wife because Shirley was my girlfriend. And, um, you know, we thought it's now or never. We were doing uh, okay, you know, no no responsibilities as far as, um, you know, owning a home or things like that. So, um, yeah, no, no ties. So I thought that was the right time to do something big.
2: Well, it does sound timely. It was back in 2010, so seven
0: years ago. I'm sure a lot has changed since then. Absolutely, yes. We are now uh, proud parents of a two and a half year old boy, and uh, you know it's definitely changing the game here as far as as far as uh, risk and type of adventures we can do with them. Oh
2: yeah. Well, I have to drill a little bit deeper there. You said uh, that it was timely to do it, and I agree. But a lot of people might have a, a timely time in their lives, but they still don't try to travel. How many miles was this total? About fifteen thousand miles. <laughs>
0: Uh, that was more, a little more than that, but yeah, I haven't timed everything and calculated everything, but we we close to 15,000, that's right.
2: <laughs> so what was it that, that gave you guys the inspiration to take on this feat? I mean, just kayaking the Inside Passage alone is huge.
0: You know, they they were few drivers and i'm sure when somebody hears our story or stories of people who've done really lengthy trips um you know there are many many factors first of all people ask you how can you afford it or i would love we we heard that a lot i would love to do what you did it's just you know not the right time i can't because i have a mortgage i can't because i have a job i can't because i have um you know a family so so there's always excuses and and myself included i had excuses I think the, um, the whole thing started with one of my really good friends who had taken, let's call that quote unquote a sabbatical and had traveled around the world basically and spent extensive amount of time through, you know, uh, third world countries and exploring all kinds of things. And he came back after a year, you know, he was out of money and, um, he found a job pretty quickly right after this. And then he repeated that two years later. He went back again for over a year and a half until he ran out of money. And I had a conversation with him. And, of course, you know, I felt um, very envious of what he did. And I did the math in my head. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, with two, three weeks vacation per year, it would take me 50 years to see and do all the things you did in those two years. Mm. And I told him I'm really jealous. And then he paused and he said, why? You can do it. As a matter of fact, anybody can do it. All you got to do is have the guts to quit your job. And go and then I had a light bulb in my head that said um, you know he's right I mean what stops me I'm just I'm just scared so so I thought about it and uh, I did just that you know the hardest part of the whole trip to be honest was uh, living my job because that was a you know fairly decent job that that I enjoyed so the rest was uh, was piece of cake I'd say (laughs) in comparison
2: So was Shirley on board from this from the beginning, or did you have to convince her of the idea?
0: Oh, no, no. We were adventure partners, um, you know, for many years before that. And, you know, every trip was getting harder and more difficult and more challenging than the previous. So we were hitching to, to get on the road. You know, for, for us, weekends were not long enough. We got to a point where just being weekend warriors, you know, going on, you know, the Bag of Peak or, or do some long adventure over... You know, a 72-hour period or 48-hour period was just not enough. We needed more. We, we had the drive. Motivation was was there 100%. And we just had to eliminate um, what was holding us back, which was jobs. My, uh, my wife at the time was uh, doing her PhD. And we timed the start of our trip, you know, just for her to get her, her PhD. And it unfortunately, it did not work that way. But, <laughs> but she's glad she went on the trip anyway.
2: Mm, Okay. Well, I have to go back to the job thing a little bit more. I think a lot of people, they say, yeah, I could quit doing what I'm doing. And when I get back, I could probably get another job doing something sim- similar, you know, mm-hmm. but some people are going to say, I can't quit my job. That would be quitting my career.
0: Right. Um, so it, I guess you got to follow your passion, right? If your passion is a career and getting rich and making a lot of money, you know, have at it. Uh, That's not the type of person I am. I don't count life in terms of years and money. I count it in terms of adventures and experiences. So with that said, you know, going on the adventure was the right thing. You always regret the things you have not done, but you rarely regret what you've tried and, you know, failed doing.
2: You know, I think that that's a beautiful answer. And I have to agree you know, it's so easy to get trapped with a comfortable income and want to see it grow. And, and uh, it creates that fear, that anxiety that if I try to do something else, I might lose this path that I'm on, you know.
0: Right. And trust me, uh, a lot of people try to steer us away from that idea. My parents were really actually scared and anxious of me kind of ruining all that investment that I'd made in education and, you know, growing my career at the time. But I thought I was at a, at a right spot in my life. You know, I was uh, just about, you know, 30, 31 years old. So 10 years of experience, work experience behind me at the degree, I felt pretty confident that, you know, I would be able to get another job after I came back. So oh, and nice as I said, cool. the experience is, um, you know, is invaluable. The not the job experience, but having done, you know, having achieved your dream is kind of a. You know, something you, you can't pass on if you have the opportunity.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think that a lot of people like to throw up uh, objections. You know, it's like, well, I'd love to, but. And right. one of the biggest objections is what you just talked about. It's like, well, am I going to be sacrificing my career? Will I be able to get another job when I get back? And what you're saying is just go do it because the memories are going to be worth more than anything else.
0: Absolutely. Now, I'm I'm in a different situation. I uh, I have a home, I have a child, I have a wife, um, mortgage, you know, all those things are in my life. I'm just basically like I would say most people in this country, but still, I still have dreams of other adventures I'd like to do. And I think I'll act on it at some point in in the future.
2: Yeah, really, really cool. Well,
0: let's dive into
2: some of the details about this adventure. Once again, phase one was kayaking the Inside Passage. Phase two was a through hike of the Pacific Crest Trail. And phase three was cycling through Central and South America. I mean, this is mind-blowing the the experience that you had must have just been outstanding. I mean, there's no word that could describe all the experiences that you would encounter, you know, on something like this.
0: Right. So a lot of things was, uh, you know, was planned with with several weeks and months of of thinking, but um, so once I made the decision that i 'm going to leave my job and go on a big adventure, I still had no idea what adventure it would be. so we started dreaming big and and putting down the type of activities and trips we'd like to do um, you know if we never had to work again, and if income was unlimited, for example, or money was unlimited, so we put down things like. You know, climbing Mount Everest, doing a safari in Africa, you know, hiking to the South Pole, cycling around the world, like a ton of activities that are big, committing, that you can only do if you're not working, right? And and after doing the math, it turned out that there was about 40, 50 years worth of activities right. if I were to do them back to back. So better start now, Right. So so the initial big dream that we had, uh, which we had to trim down a little bit, was to go from North Pole to South Pole on human power. Mm. That, that, that was a big dream, right? Probably um, very difficult to achieve with our experience at the time. So we looked into it and uh, actually had the opportunity to, to talk some to some of the polar explorers that, um, that went to the poles and uh discuss you know logistic and finance and all this so we decided that okay um that might be a little too expensive for our budgets you know we we don't really want to spend the time to acquire sponsors and all this so so why don't we trim the extremities we're going to try to do something a little shorter maybe from the arctic circle to you know the antarctic circle <laughs> and that's how the trip came about you know uh what can we do with limited budgets and uh and I'm happy actually to report that that trip was pretty cheap if people are interested, we only spent about twelve thousand dollars for about two years for two people to to make all this happen wow well, that you know twelve thousand dollars is is
2: a fair chunk of change, but when you realize that that's two years
0: of right living. so per person, if you break it down, we're talking about three thousand dollar per year per person right so so it's I'm not saying everybody can do it, but we also um, we also went really cheap. You know, a lot of camping in our schedule. Um, uh, our budget, you know, because we, we recorded everything, all the details. Our lodging budget over two years was $300 for the two of us. That's how much <laughs> wow. we spent to, to put a roof over our head and a shower. And um, a lot of camping for sure. I'd say about 90, 95% of our time was spent under a tent at night. Uh, But we also got invited quite a bit, you know, um, just meeting strangers along the way. And they offered us a shower, they offered us a roof for the night, or, you know, we shared dinners together. That was great.
2: Neat, neat. It just kind of illustrates that when you commit to doing something and you start out, a lot of things that would be kind of scary question marks or barriers to the adventure work themselves out as you go along, like all the people that, that wanted to be a part of it by sharing their homes with you.
0: Right, absolutely. I mean, one of the big things I discovered along the way, which I'm absolutely convinced about, is there's always a solution to every problem. It doesn't matter what problem you get yourself into, how bad it seems at the time, you're always going to get out of it. It's, uh, people are there and uh, people help quite a bit along the way. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, let's talk about phase one, kayaking the inside passage. Did you, did you start in Anchorage? Is that right? Uh, no, we started in Juneau, Alaska. Ah, Juneau. So, okay, started yep. in Juneau, sea kayaked, and where did you pull out?
0: We, uh, we finished our trip in Seattle, Washington. We actually had, um, one of my friend's siblings who lived there, so that was a good place to, uh, to rest and transition for our next leg of the trip. Cool. So, what was it
2: like to sea kayak that distance, and... That inside passage is not
0: all completely sheltered from the Pacific either, is it? That is correct. And those sections scared us quite a bit. So, (laughs) you know, when you plan all this, you work with maps and, you know, you trace a dotted line on the map. And then when you fly to Alaska, you look over the window, you know, at the ocean and you realize it's not as blue as the map. I see a lot of white, white (laughs) caps and waves crashing on the shore and and it's dawned on us that what, what are we thinking? You know, what, what are we get, getting ourselves into? Are we going to be able to survive this? The interesting thing, too, is I, I couldn't call myself a kayaker at the time. We had the idea. We thought that was really nice. And our only kayaking experience really was, um, you know, a week-long trip um, somewhere in Alaska just for, you know, a, a week-long trip. And um, we just thought that was awesome. And then we decided to make it bigger. So we bought a boat. We trained a little bit, doing some um, longer and longer uh, distances. And then that was it. You know, the, the big trip started. <laughs> so you had one tandem kayak then? That's correct. Yeah, we thought that'd be uh, probably smarter because uh, it's so easy to, um, to drift apart when you have two different boats. And if you're in, in a bad weather and you're only about 100 feet apart, it might be really hard to communicate. Plus the problem of capsizing being separate Uh, a single boat with heavier weights is more stable and um you know if we capsize which we didn't do fortunately one person could stabilize the the craft while the other one gets back in and we can help each other this way
2: uh that's that's some thinking there so tell us a little bit about the boat
0: some details well um very nice boat let's say you know we didn't go for the cheap one from walmart we uh (laughs) We went with, uh, did a lot of research and got a boat uh, from a company that's uh, shutting down. Unfortunately, it's a Canadian boat called uh, Feathercraft. A really nice boat. And the particularity of it is their skin on frame. So those boats fold in the size of a suitcase. So they're easy to fly somewhere. When you get to your uh, departure point, you assemble it. Mm. So the the outside is basically rubber for the bottom and um, cordura for the top. And the, the frame on the inside that keeps it rigid is uh, plastic and, and aluminum. So
2: with that kind of uh, uh, fabric over frame design, did that create any more drag or slow the boat down? Or do you think it's pretty comparable?
0: Uh, I think it might be a little bit slower. Now, the benefit of a tandem is you get two engines propelling the, the boat, right? So right. so it goes faster than a single kayak. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit disadvantage with, with drag. But it's, uh, you know, safety, you know, goes up because with the skin on frame type boats, the energy from the ocean, especially when you're in a, in a bad weather situation, that energy gets absorbed by flexing the, you know, the fabric. Right. So it's great. It makes the boat very stable in rough weather. And at times we were really glad, you know, we had this type of boat and, and not a rigid type craft.
2: Huh. So is it as comfortable with a skin on frame, for instance, I would be worried about putting my feet in the wrong place and chafing the fabric or something. Is that an issue? Uh,
0: Not from stepping inside the boat. That's strong enough. Now, you like with every boat, right, you got to make sure you're uh, you don't hit the bottom, that you don't scrape it on a reef or on on uh, seashells, because that could that could definitely, um, you know, cause problems. Now, there's nothing duct tape can't fix, right? (laughs) All <laughs> right.
2: Bentgate Gate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and splitboarding gear. Bent Gate carries the premier brands, including... Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignal, Solomon Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment including the latest skis, boots, splitboards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. So what was it like? Give us a typical day, somewhere in the middle of your kayaking part of the journey, what was a typical day like?
0: Uh, very few uh, vessels around us. Majority of the time, we're just by ourselves, um, you know, paddling. Uh, long days, usually, you know, we, uh, we wake up uh, by sunrise, can paddle all the way to sunset sometimes. Um, and you really have no idea where you're going to camp the next night. All you know is you're leaving and you're, you're surrounded by beautiful sceneries. You know, the, the British Columbian rainforest and Alaskan rainforest are just gorgeous with amazing wildlife. Um, we had whales and killer whales and, and bears um, all around us. It was just magical. I mean, and out of the three sections of our triathlon, that was probably the most scenic and the most gorgeous and uh, um, the best part of the trip.
2: You know, in the limited amount of boating that I've been able to do, I've noticed that animals, as a rule, they don't recognize you as human or or as a threat when you drift up to them in a boat. Whereas if you're on a bike or even walking, they identify you as, oh, there's a human, and we don't know about these things, right? But in a boat, it seems like you can get really close.
0: That's true, yeah, you got to be cautious with that. Uh, Sometimes animals get a little too close for comfort. Uh, We get chased by... uh by sea lions and they're big animals they can weigh you know 400 pounds or so and uh it it would only take a second for them to jump on the deck of our boat and flip us and when we started the water temperature was about 35 degrees fahrenheit so definitely don't want to flip the boat you know in those conditions
2: right so did you have any encounters with wildlife that left you a little bit shaken
0: uh, absolutely. Uh, I'd say more amazed than shaken. I mean, we've seen bears up close. Uh, when you land on the beach, that's very narrow because there's rainforest on the other side and you know water on the other. And you see bear tracks, massive bear tracks on the beach or wolf tracks. And the only place where you can camp is right in the middle of those tracks. Um, you feel nervous at night. You got to make sure that you keep all your all your food far away from where you're going to pitch your tent and and far away from where you're going to eat. So So did you uh, use a bear line or a canister or what did you do? uh, Yes, we had two bear canister for our food uh, that prevents them from accessing it. Uh, We also were hanging a lot of it as well, because we had to carry about three weeks of food supplies. Um, Problem with Alaska is the settlements or the towns are really far apart. And, Um, it's impossible to predict how long it's going to take to go from one place to another because you're so dependent on the weather and the ocean conditions. So, you know, when you have to go 200 miles between towns, it could take us as little as eight days. It could also take a month. You never know. It really depends on current, wind, wave, and so on. Mm. Did you supplement your food at all with fish or, or natural foods that you found along the way? You know, we thought a little bit about it, uh, catching fish. Um, we realized it was uh, taking way too long to try to fish. So time that we could spend paddling forward, getting in the right direction versus, you know, trying to survive. So so no, we did not uh, fish. However, we were eating other uh, um, other things like um, uh, some seashells we tried, sea urchins, for example. Uh, we also uh, ate a lot of the berries. There's a lot of uh, types of berries that grow in those wet environments. Sure. We were also eating some uh, some plant that looked very much like an asparagus. That's called fiddleheads. And they're small, uh, small growth of, um, I would say, maybe fern. And when they're baby, they, they taste very much like asparagus when you cook them. Yeah, that's great. Asparagus is a type of fern, isn't
2: it? It is, yes. Very, very cool. Well, what was the water like, the ocean conditions? You know, if you had those exposed sec- sections where you were open to the Pacific, you would have to really tolerate some huge waves and rollers coming in, I would think.
0: Right. We learned the hard way that, um, you know, we lived in Los Angeles uh, before that trip, but we learned the hard way that the Alaskan weather is not the California weather. And things that start in a, in a mirror-like conditions. you know, sometimes the, the ocean is so flat there's not a single ripple on it. It looks like a mirror. You can start like this and end up in, in waves that are six foot high and that are rolling and crashing on your boat. So the, the worst passage uh, we've had to do, we were in, in seas that they were, they were about nine feet high. So when you're in the bottom, you don't see the horizon. You don't see the land. You feel like you're among the giants. And, and your boat goes up and down nine feet as you're crossing that uh, that section. It's, it's very intimidating. I think that the day we did the big crossing, we were in our boat for 12 hours nonstop without putting a foot on the ground.
2: Wow. Did you have to wait for weather
0: in some of these crossings? A couple times, yeah. We actually only were stranded, I would say, because of weather um, two days where we stay put for two days waiting for conditions to improve. We dared it a few times. I think our shortest day was four miles, and that wasn't by choice. That was uh, dictated by the weather. We left a a creek that was fairly sheltered, paddled out in the open, realized that's way too much for us, and pulled out in the next creek and and waited it off.
2: Yeah, that's probably wise. But if you're willing to contend with 12 hours of nine-foot rollers— (laughs) then <laughs> been, I don't think, uh, I don't think a, a small storm would keep you at bay too easily.
0: Right. You get, you get more confident and sometime, unfortunately, you know, you gotta, you gotta get, get a lesson from mother nature to teach you that, um, you gotta be more cautious. Well, did you guys,
2: uh, capsize and have issues with that from time to time?
0: We, we had some really close calls, um, but we did not capsize. No, we, uh, thanks to our boats, that's very stable. And, uh, um, we also wear you know those dry suits, right. so the dry suit keep you completely dry from neck to toes. The only thing that would get wet if we were to capsize would be our head and our hands, so we would have you know a, a decent amount of survival time if if we were to capsize still not the best scenario Wow, so how much do you think the the boat and all of the gear that you were hauling weighed so the boat itself empty is about hundred pounds, and uh we had a good 200 pounds of supplies. So if you had food, water, all our camping gears and survival gears, and um, I'd, say, I'd say about you know, 250 or so, 300 pounds when it's completely full. That's quite a bit of a mass to, to paddle along. Right. Yeah, you get inertia, though. That's the nice thing. When it's really heavy, it might take a long time for you to make it move, but you have momentum after that. So, so it doesn't take too much work to keep it going.
2: Well, it's fascinating to me. Sea kayaking is not something that I can say I've done any of. You know, I did whitewater kayaking, I've done rafting, I've done canoeing, but sea kayaking is kind of a whole novel concept to me. So this is really fun to hear about how it went. Did you enjoy the kayaking or the hiking or the biking the most?
0: It depends when you ask the question. If you ask me right after, you know, we're done with the kayaking portion, I would tell you at the time, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> because you're moving, you know, uh, you average about two miles per hour or so. And when you're close to shore, you know, you kind of see the landscape moving slowly. But as soon as you move away from shore, you're, let's say, a mile or two away, uh, it feels like you're not going anywhere. And at times, we were not going anywhere because, um, because of currents. So it's really hard to... Um, to to realize that you're inside a current unless you use a GPS to monitor your speed. But uh, there's one time where we were paddling for an hour and the, the scenery didn't seem to change much. So I pulled out a GPS and we were literally moving at zero relative <laughs> to the to the ground because we had a, a, a head current that are pushing us backward.
2: <laughs> well, I was getting ready to ask about the current. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. So... In the, uh, the island areas, the coastal islands on any shore, right, as the, as the tides come in and out, the currents change and reverse. And from one end of the island to another, they're going to come from a different direction depending on the time of day, twice a day. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Did you have to plan for all of that to, to make it oh, efficient?
0: This, this is the majority of our day. I mean, you get, you get charts or you know, tables that tell you at what time is the high tide and at what time is the low tide for, for known towns. But if you're in between, you, let's say, 50 or 100 miles from a town that has all the numbers on the paper, um, you have to interpolate. Am I going to get the high tide, you know, a few minutes later, a few minutes earlier, and so on. So so tides can fluctuate by about 20 feet from high to low. So it takes six hours from the water level to change 20 feet. It, it makes it very challenging to land somewhere and depart from somewhere. You're not always choosing when you want to go. Sometimes you have to wait for the water to rise high enough so you can launch your boat in the water. So it's all about the tide. We're, we're just trying to accommodate, you know, the tide schedule and we have no control and, you know, we, we have to work with that. Yeah. It's also a challenge when you camp, you know, when you see a nice sand beach, it's usually a warning sign, right? <laughs> you see a nice sand beach, it means it's going to get covered at some point. And during the high tide, the water level actually raises into the vegetation. So it goes in the trees. So I, I don't know how those trees survive, but it looks like one or two days a month, those trees are actually under the seawater. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, you got to plan that. You got to look at uh, the line of seaweeds from the previous tide. You look at your tables and you know that the next tide is going to be about, you know, one foot higher. So you got to make sure that you're, you set up your tent above the waterline. And a few times we had to set up our alarm at night and, um, you know, wake up, open the door, and make sure that we're not going to get too wet. Did you ever wake up in the sea? Uh, no, we planned it pretty well. <laughs> well, <laughs> well we I woke can see up drenched see that happening. A few times. Yeah, we woke up drenched a few times. You, you know, there's a reason why it's a rainforest up there. there. We had 10 days of continuous rain at one point. And everything was wet. You could never get anything to dry. You know, sleeping bags were wet. The tent was soaked like a sponge. It was just nonstop. And uh, 10 days of that is is intense.
2: Yeah, I can see why you would say at the end of it, I don't want to do that again. But now
0: that time has gone by, how do you feel about it? Now that it's all over and when I look back into it, this was the most amazing, the most scenic, the, the most adventurous part of our entire trip. You know, we call that, uh, a lot of people call that uh, type two fun. Right. You know, type one is you're doing it and you're having fun doing it. Type two is you're not necessarily enjoying it at the moment, but you get great memories of it. So that's a type two.
2: (laughs) Definitely a type two. And I totally get that. And sometimes when I'm in a type two experience, I have to remind myself how much fun this is going to be in a week or so.
0: (laughs) Right. I do a lot of that. (laughs)
1: Take a second to visit members.adventuresportspodcast.com. As you've heard, that's our new members site where you guys can get great deals by sponsoring the show. It allows you to get discounts on all kinds of adventure-related vendors for as little as $4.95 a month. So it's a good way to support the show and get something back. And while you're at it, if you hear a sponsor on our show, do us a favor and give them a shout out. It lets them know that their ad is working and it keeps money flowing into the show so we can keep excellent episodes coming to you twice a week. Thanks, guys. The Bearline Plus by 180TAC is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bear Line Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bear Lines. Not only does the Bear Line Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bear Line Plus at 180TAC.com or retailers near you.
2: Any uh, tips or tricks, words to the wise for people that might want to do some sea kayaking in the inside passage?
0: Uh, yeah, there's some protected coves where you can probably start um, the activities. I mean, I would, of course, recommend you start practicing on a boat in warm water just to get the feel of capsizing and getting back on the boat. That's it's kind of critical, right? If you're far from shore, you're not going to swim to shore. you got to find out how, how to get back on board. So practice and, and then... Um, when we did our first Alaskan trip, we went to an area called Prince William Sound, which is near Anchorage, Alaska. And it was just gorgeous, and the waters are mostly protected. Uh, you never get into really big seas because um, the body of water is fairly small, and you're, you're approaching glaciers, icebergs. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Um, yeah, if, you, if you've never done it, uh, definitely start, start slow and, and pick up as you go. Okay, well, it's on my list.
2: I have to do that one. Sounds wonderful. Wonderful. I I did make it to Prince William Sound and got to see the glaciers and everything that you're describing, and we were on a bigger ship. It would be so fun to be in a sea kayak where you can really get close to the action, you know?
0: can be scary at times.
2: Yeah, no (laughs) doubt. No doubt. And I, I also had an experience once, Yannick, where I was being swept out to sea, from the Florida Keys because of extraordinarily strong currents that were created by the tide coming in. And I thought that, you know, I was going to spend the next month adrift (laughs) until I starved or something (laughs) ate me. And so I can imagine how spooky that would be. Was it scary or was it peaceful? Were you and Shirley able to, to relax into it after a while or was there always that little bit of intimidation there?
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, because we planned that trip and of course there's a lot of anxiety fear of the unknown right that's what adventure is it's when things don't happen the way you want them to happen that that's really where where adventure starts but we spent a lot of time planning that first leg of our trip that kayaking trip probably two months of research and testing and practicing and dialing everything in and then the two other legs of our trip you know hiking the pacific crest trail and cycling to the Southern tip of South America, we pretty much wing those two activities because you get in the rhythm, you get into you know, the mode of traveling and, and you sort of know that things are gonna sort themselves out over time. You know, like uh, uh, you just gotta make progress. And sometimes even if you go in the wrong direction, uh, you can't really call that getting lost. You just made, you know, a, a little detour. Right. You're eventually gonna get to your destination if time is not of essence, you'll get there. <laughs>
2: yeah. That's we had true. a lot of
0: safety. Yeah. I, I want to mention one thing, you know, we, we had planned a lot of things for safety. So we had a um, VHF radio to communicate with other boats. We had flares in case we're, we're crashed our boat, for example, and are unable to, to resume the, the navigation. Um, we had uh two way radios. We had, uh, um, a spot, uh, device. I don't know if you know what this is. This is that little orange box that you can send a signal to the satellite and tell them that you're in trouble and they will send hopefully rescue personnel to get you. So, so we had a lot of safety devices and, uh, we also had pepper spray, bear spray for, uh, an occasional, you know, bad encounter. And, uh, we, we were prepared as much as we could. In the end, did you find
2: yourself needing to use those devices or was it just nice to know that they were there? it's peace of
0: mind we never had to use them yeah we were using our radio to uh to get the weather forecast you know before we we paddle out um but we never had to use uh, our bear spray um but we heard a lot of stories you know it's it's interesting how everybody you meet along the inside passage has some sort of a bear story sometime good sometime not so good but <laughs> a lot of bear stories we yeah. actually uh, Um, when we kayaked ourselves, we did not see grizzlies along the inside passage. It was early in the season. They were not getting to the coast yet. Um, but we did see a Komodi bear. It's a bear that's completely white. And our first thought when we saw that bear on shore was, you know, that it was a polar bear. And then I tried to think a little bit and realized there's no polar bear that low, you know, along the coast. So that must have been something else. And doing more research, we stopped at a ghost town, talked to the caretaker of that ghost town, and he said, oh, yeah, those are komodi bear. They're not albino, but they look very much like an albino, and, and they're really rare. He was mentioning uh, another person who had been coming for the past five years looking to take photo of these bears and could never find one. Wow. Very elusive animal, and we were lucky enough to, to spot one.
2: Well, I've heard stories that the Native Americans would see a bear like that and, and see that as an omen for for times that are changing or, or things to come.
0: Right. We felt incredibly lucky and privileged, really, to witness that rare animal that very few people get to see.
2: I think whenever I have an experience somewhat like that, and I've never seen a Komodi bear, but I always look at that and I like to just kind of chuckle to myself and say, this is a good medicine day. Good Absolutely. things have happened, <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's really fun. Well, we have to transition into some more of the trip. I really wanted to hear a lot about the Inside Passage because it's what I know the least about, right? But right. the Pacific Crest Trail, how did that go for you?
0: You know, we, uh, we wanted to vary the activity. Um, we're the type of people who tend to get bored if we repeat the same thing too much. So the kayaking, after two and a half months of doing it every day, we, uh, we were glad it, it ended. And we were excited for the next leg. Now, the main challenge, as you can imagine, when you kayak, you use your upper body a lot. A lot of arms, a lot of back muscle. Your legs are sitting on a chair the whole time. So that transition was interesting because we had really strong upper bodies at the time. But our legs were jello. We we could barely walk. I think in, in two and a half months, we had walked a couple miles or so. So so we use trekking poles at the beginning and powered up, you know, pushing with our with our arms. And over time, of course, your legs get stronger and and, um, and and you're able to to do what you're supposed to do. But like all those activities, it's really hard to judge how much food you need to carry with you between, you know, uh, resupply points. Because you don't know, you know, over the long term how many miles you'll be able to cover on a repetitive basis. So is it 15 miles a day? 20 miles a day, 25, 30, you know, we kind of have an idea, but we never experienced, you know, the day after day after day type, uh, workouts. So, sure. so we started and, um, you know, got stronger over time. We actually crossed the state of Washington, uh, pretty much under snow. It was completely covered with snow when we, uh, started it. A lot of, uh, other parties that bailed or had, had trouble with avalanches and frostbites. Um, Let's say our background made this feel strong because we did a lot of mountaineering prior to starting that triathlon. So, so we were used to snow and ice, and, uh, and we felt confident that we could, we could navigate through that. The GPS was key because uh, most of the trail was buried under several feet of snow at the time. So I hadn't really thought about that, you know, to
2: spend such a long period of time seated in the sea kayak. So maybe it would be a good idea for people to... Uh, maybe jog a mile or something each day before they get
0: in the boat. But we were not pressed by time. So we actually had planned a very um, conservative schedule. Our goal when we started the Pacific Crest Trail uh, was to cover about 15 miles per day. And so we started with 15 miles a day and that's the amount of food we carried, you know, until we get to our next uh, resupply points. And uh, we slowly increased that and we dialed things in over time. um, uh, And we realized that the sweet spots... Uh, for us, was around 25 miles per day. 25 miles of hiking. Correct, yes. Now, when your backpack is full of food, you have a week of supplies with you, you move a little slow, but as you start consuming all that food, the pack gets lighter and you go a little faster. So so that was our sweet spot. The the other difficult thing to est- estimate is um, the amount of elevation gain and loss. You know, it's one thing to do 25 miles on fairly flat ground, add you know, four or five thousand feet of climbing, descending, and um, you know, it becomes a little more challenging. Huh, a lot more I would say. So
2: that's that's an impressive distance to cover every day. I think that through hikers end up somewhere around that distance because as they get accustomed to the rhythm of, of hiking and their muscles and everything, adjust to it, then that, that tends to be the distances I hear people talking about. That still sounds like a very long way to go day after day after day after
0: day. I mean, that's, that's about like doing a marathon. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> a marathon a day. And uh, we figured out, you know, the, the trail, total distance for the Pacific Crest Trail is just under um, 2,700 miles. So we figured if we break that into uh, 100 segments – we'll be doing 1% of the distance on each day. And we thought, you know, this we can process with our head because there's so much distance and so much elevation gain. It's hard to fathom, you know, how you can handle it. So breaking it into um, a full percentage sounded like we could, we could handle that in our head. <laughs> the, um, the other thing also, which is uh, amazing, that Pacific Crest Trail has about half a million feet of climbing. Imagine climbing up half a million feet. It's wow. about, uh, Everest is 30,000 feet, uh, more or less from sea level. So it's kind of like climbing Everest from sea level about, um, I'd say about 18 times.
2: Mm. Well, tell us one of your favorite experiences that you had on the trail.
0: Uh, yes, of course, the favorite thing um, is when you get to eat. <laughs> it's amazing. We, we take that for granted, you know, having food in our plate every day in the Western world. Um, but we were hungry. We felt like we were starving. We were losing body mass rapidly. And that had to do with the mileage we were trying to put every day. Um, we were sort of on a, on a schedule. We had a deadline because we when you go southbound on the Pacific Crest Trail, you have to make sure you cross the southern part, the Sierra Nevada, before the start of the snow season, which is typically early October. And there's some really high passes you had to get over, uh, some passes that are at 13,000 feet. And if it was covered with a foot of snow, that would make that section very challenging and very difficult. So, so we had a schedule to maintain. We are pushing hard to maintain it. And we were constantly hungry. We, uh, we could never have enough food. We did a lot of... Uh, you know, gorging on food when we stopped in the town. But then we had to ration ourselves for the next segment. So, so that was the challenging part. And, and food was the, the thing that was in our mind constantly. Where can we eat?
2: <laughs> I have heard many people say that the scenery on the Pacific Crest Trail is just outstanding and that they really, really enjoyed just hiking through all of that paradise. But since you just came from the Inside Passage, which is really outstanding,
0: how, how would you rate it? It is gorgeous. Um, there's there's some repetition to it as well. You know, the there's always the dream of what we think it's going to be like, and then there's the reality of what it's like. And um, I don't want to put a negative spin on this, but there's a lot of repetition when you hike. You know, sure. um, especially for for my part, what we thought was difficult was crossing the state of Oregon, because um, in Oregon you spend a lot of your time in the trees, in the forest. So you don't get the great views uh, very often, but those are the highlights. You know, when you pop above the trees and you get to see a magnificent scenery, you see Crater Lake, you see the, the Three Sisters area, those are gorgeous. But in between the gorgeous spots, there's a lot of uh, repetition and um, you know, a lot of sceneries that, that doesn't seem to change fast enough. <laughs> right, right. So how did the... Uh...
2: The views change and the scenery change as you went north to south. I know that you start out with a lot of the temperate rainforest, and then you continue down um, into drier
0: areas as you go south. Right? Absolutely. Yeah you you get to see it um, you know as it as it happens very slowly, and and that's probably the best way to experience it. You know, oftentimes when we go on vacation we we fly somewhere or we we drive a long distance to get to to our destination and we see a drastic change in scenery um but hiking the trail at the speed we hiking you know you see you see the gradual change it's not like you know opening the door of the plane and seeing something brand new it it changes gradually slowly and it's really from your pictures that you can tell that the scenery is now different than than it was a week ago because in your mind you just see the Uh, The climate changing, temperature increasing, vegetation slowly transitioning, but it's never very dramatic uh, for most of it.
2: You know, when I was a kid, I was a little bit prejudiced. And what I mean by that is I was prejudiced for the type of scenery that I liked. I thought that the plains were boring and the mountains were exciting, that the forest was interesting and the desert was dry, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think over the years, I've realized that every landscape has its own unique beauty and charm and adventure. But what would you say was your favorite?
0: So this is interesting what you're saying, because we we talked to other through hikers of the Pacific Crest Trail that were going the opposite direction. It seems like everybody is sort of prejudiced at at some point. A lot of them like the green. They like the forest because they started their trip in the desert. As for us, uh, I'd say my favorite part uh, is the Sierra Nevada of California. I love the higher altitude, uh, the expensive views. The, the northern part of the country, you know, Oregon, Washington State, those have a lot of trees, and and they block your views oftentimes. So personally, Sierra Nevadas of California were so my favorite.
2: Just because the, bu- the views were more expansive, huh?
0: Right. And uh, the lakes are gorgeous. You know, there's water everywhere, so you can resupply. You don't have to carry a ton of liquid with you. Um, As you go south though, you know, you start crossing deserts. Um, You have to watch for your water. You have to carry a lot of it because you don't know where and when you're going to find the next source. And, uh, you know, and there's a lot of repetition crossing a flat desert. You know, it takes a long time for you to get from point A to point B.
2: Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So you did phase two, the thru hike of the Pacific Crest Trail, in 123 days. So you guys were pretty darn close to that one percent a day. You were right. Hoofing so, it.
0: so the uh, where we lose, you know, days is really when um, when you stop at those trail angels. Oh, yeah. There's some people that are wonderful along the trail. They basically open up their house to hikers. They allow them to do a laundry, to shower, to to camp on their land, even sometimes to stay in their house. And those are amazing people, and and they get to see hundreds of hikers who, who invade their privacy, I should say. <laughs> but but those are awesome time. You know, you get to rest, you get to chat, you don't have to walk, um, because walking becomes like a job almost after a while, right? Your your body's telling you to stop, but you press on. So you're tired. All you want to do is rest and watch TV, probably, or <laughs> right. eat. But you know you're on a schedule, so you can't rest too long. It's 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 easy to um you know to and it's natural probably to want to take a break. But uh, if you take too many breaks, you know you might miss the window.
2: Oh yeah, I think that is why a lot of people choose to section hike these major trails, so that they don't have to race against the the changing seasons so much.
0: Going northbound, you know, is the the most traditional ways of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. I'd say the ratio of northbound versus southbound hikers is uh, 90-10 or 95-5%. And that range because you have much more time going north. You can start, you know, in early April. And by the time you get to the mountain, you know, the snow starts to melt. And, and you, you get you get yourself about five months to complete the trail before you get shut down by, by the winter season. When you go southbound, your your window is a lot shorter. You get yourself... You know, more like four months to complete it. So, so there's definitely more of a rush feeling going south, and it's it's not as uh, social, and it's not as uh, uh, you know uh, stress free as as the other direction. <laughs>
2: so, when you meet people along the trail, do they look at you sideways and say, "Why are you walking the wrong way?"
0: Um, pretty much, yes, yes. <laughs> and we we get to talk a lot when all the northbound people. Are you know when we're crossing paths, everybody wants to talk and know what's coming. Right. And uh, you know if we spend five minutes with each individual, and there's 300 of them, that's a lot of days here. That's oh, yeah. a lot of uh, you know distance that can be uh, <laughs> hiked. So so yeah, you got to balance it out. You know how much time you want to socialize versus how much time you want to walk. <laughs> that's it's not great one to socialize. I would have thought of. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> that's great.
1: That'll do it for part one of Yannick's interview with Kurt on his transcontinental triathlon. You guys have a good Memorial Day weekend and tune in on Monday for part two. Until then, get out and have some fun.